Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Linda House. I'm the president of the Cancer Support Community, and I'm sitting in today for your regular host, Kim Tebaldo, who is off today. The Cancer Support Community is a global nonprofit network of 175 locations, including Cancer Support Community and Gilda's Club Centers, healthcare partnerships, and affiliate locations that deliver more than $50 million in free support services to patients and families every year. Not long ago, I read a New York Times article about immunotherapy and lung cancer. And in the article, an oncologist remarked, I've been treating lung cancer for 25 years now, and I've never seen such a paradigm shift as we're seeing with immunotherapy. Without a doubt, the past few years have been an exciting time for lung cancer research with new drugs bringing hope to patients and their families and this new technology. In today's episode, we're going to take a closer look at how immunotherapy is being used to treat lung cancer and why the medical community is so optimistic about its potentials. I am absolutely thrilled to have with us today, for this fascinating and important conversation, an old friend of mine, an old colleague of mine, Dr. David Carbone, and I think once you hear his background, you'll agree that we couldn't have a better guide through this complex therapy. Dr. Carbone's 27-year career as an oncologist has been focused on creating cutting-edge treatments for patients with lung cancer and mesothelioma. He is a professor of internal medicine as well as director of both the James Thoracic Oncology Center and the Translational Therapeutics Program at the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center. His research has been in the molecular biology of lung tumors, which includes understanding the genetic, proteomic, and metabolic features of each patient's cancer, and also in developing and optimizing targeted and immunotherapies. He has served as an investigator on multiple clinical trials and authored over 250 peer-reviewed publications, book chapters, and reviews. Welcome to the show, Dr. Carbone. Well, it's a pleasure to, to be on. You've been quite a busy man over these years, 250 publications, book chapters, and reviews. Well, it, it reflects my, my passion for the subject and uh, for improving the outcome of patients with lung cancer. Well, we appreciate your work. And could we just sort of start by level setting our listeners? And I don't believe, um, and you know I'm an oncology nurse, um, I don't believe that, that the general population is really familiar with lung cancer and that there are actually different types of lung cancer. So would you mind just taking uh, a minute or two and explaining that to our listeners? Uh, I don't mind at all. The, and, and in fact, I, I always do that with, with my patients faced with the new diagnosis, try to lay out a little bit about uh, what lung cancer is. And, and the, the school book answer is that there are two main kinds. There's small cell and non-small cell, uh, fundamentally diff- based on the way they look under a microscope. But the real answer to the question is that there are hundreds or thousands of different kinds of lung cancer, um, each of which have different uh, molecular features and uh, optimal therapies, and some of whom have been discovered and uh, 
uh, whose um, specific features can be uh, targeted with specific therapies today and hopefully more in the future. Great. Thank you. And when we look at the statistics for lung cancer, a large number of patients today are still diagnosed with advanced cancer. And can you, again, help us sort of understand um, what that means and, you know, just the terms that we sort of use to, uh, to describe that? Yeah. One other thing that I, I um, understand in, in these conversations is that um, when a patient is first met with the diagnosis, they are uh, exposed to basically another language where people mm-hmm. are using terms and <clears throat> describing tests and and uh, uh, other other things that they they've never heard before, and it, it can be extremely confusing. So I think this is it's important to understand what these mean. So so in the basic most basic sense, advanced lung cancer is usually uh, defined as that um, stage where surgery is not possible. And that can either be locally advanced or systemic um, uh, their, um, involvement. <clears throat> locally advanced is when it's confined to the chest, and that's usually treated with local therapy like chemo and radiation. And um, systemic uh, or stage four metastatic disease is when it's spread outside the chest. And both of those are really uh, generally considered advanced. Great. Thank you. And... And tell us about the symptoms that you see people present with most often. The most common uh, symptom, presenting symptoms of lung cancer are very nonspecific. They're a little shortness of breath. They're fatigue. Um, the more specific symptoms are those that uh, reflect uh, symptoms from a metastasis. In other words, a, a pain in your bone, uh, headaches or seizures. Um, those sorts of symptoms, and and obviously those symptoms are derived from metastatic disease. So many patients with lung cancer, in fact, most patients with lung cancer, are diagnosed with advanced stage disease today, and that's what uh, CT screening is will hopefully uh, help with uh, detection of cancer at early stages. And I think we'll touch on that later in the the hour. Mm-hmm. Well, I think now's a, now's a perfect time to really talk about that. Um, and I, I had the opportunity to uh, observe some of Claudia Hinchke's work when she was at Cornell still um, in the early, early days of the clinical trials around um, CT screening. So I would love for you to, uh, to, to talk a bit about that. Well, I, I think CT screening uh, will revolutionize uh, the uh, approach to lung cancer and and dramatically improve outcomes if it's if it's universally applied, and and there now are two major randomized studies that support the the uh, conclusion that uh, a low dose spiral CT scan done annually can uh, decrease lung cancer mortality and in fact overall mortality uh, by uh, in the first study, 20% reduction, and in the more recent study, uh, 26% uh, reduction. And, and actually, for women in the more recent study, 
it was closer to 50% reduction in lung cancer mortality just by simply doing the, the screening CTs. And in those studies, the patients were uh, predominantly diagnosed with early-stage resectable lung cancer instead of advanced disease. And, and this will, when someone is detected in that stage, they have a much better outcome. And I think we really will see improvement uh, if these procedures are applied. <laughs> the problem is that uh, right now, less than 2% of all people in the United States eligible for screening actually get screened. And why is that? The, I think it's not widely accepted by primary care uh, doctors uh, mm-hmm. is one problem. It's often not a, one of the quality metrics that hospitals use to assess the quality of their primary care general medicine practices. And so the, uh, the doctors are much more focused on breast or colon screening, mm-hmm. which in fact have probably less of an improvement in survival than uh, lung cancer screening does. Uh, so it's partly an educational issue on, on the part of the providers, but also there's a, a stigma associated with lung cancer uh, where patients feel that they can be blamed for having it and uh, don't want to uh, get screened for that reason, too. And so a part of what, what we do here at the Cancer Support Community is make sure that people become their best advocates. And would you agree that a, that a patient who would be at high risk, and I'd like for you to define the patient who should be going in um, and asking for a, a spiral CT or a screening CT, um, if they meet the criteria, they should go in and talk to their healthcare professional and ask that they have one. Absolutely, and I think this is an example of where the patient really can be empowered uh, to uh, to request such a test, since it is now Medicare uh, paid for. Um, but the current studies are focus on people at very high risk of lung cancer, and those are the patients with more than with a significant smoking history and over the age of uh, fifty five, and uh, this is usually defined as numbers of pack years, like uh, the cutoff is, is usually 30 pack years, which means smoking one pack a day for 30 years or two packs a day for 15 years uh, puts you in the group where uh, the screening CTs have been tested. Now, unfortunately, uh, still a large fraction of patients who get lung cancer do not fall into that category. And uh, in fact, about 20, 15 or 20 percent of lung cancers arise in people that have never smoked and have done everything right, and they still get lung cancer. And we currently don't know how to best screen those people. And one of the risks is environmental radon, for example, uh, but that does not, uh, exposure to radon does not qualify you currently uh, to receive a screening CT. Okay, great. Thank you. But when in doubt, ask your uh, ask your healthcare team. Definitely. Yeah. So we have just about one minute before break, um, and you know, if you could just do a broad overview of the current treatment strategies for uh, for lung cancer before we dive into immunotherapy when we come back from break. Okay. Well, it's very hard to summarize in one mm-hmm. minute. But there's a, there are two main, uh, three main pillars of lung cancer medical therapy right now. One is targeted therapies based on gene mutations in tumors. The other is uh, immunotherapies that are uh, 
targeting processes that protect tumors from your immune system, so they unprotect the tumors and allow the immune system to work. And then the chemotherapies are still active and good uh, approaches for uh, another subset of patients. Great. Thank you. And we are going to go to a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue uh, this conversation and we'll get deeper into these treatment strategies for lung cancer when we return. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the AZI Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia, Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. At Lilly Oncology, we know people living with metastatic breast cancer, or MBC, deserve more. There has been progress made over the last few years in bringing forward new treatment options, but there is still more to be done. Lilly Oncology is focused on raising more awareness through education, more research, and more dedicated solutions to help empower people living with this disease, because together, we can do more for MBC. This content is selected by the Cancer Support Community and is funded in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. 
Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This episode of Frankly Speaking About Cancer is made possible thanks to the generous support of AstraZeneca. We welcome you back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is made possible, as I had mentioned, through the generous support of AstraZeneca. I'm Linda House, sitting in for our regular host, Kim Tebaldo, and we're taking a closer look at lung cancer, and in particular, some of the new treatment strategies or some of the new um, innovations for treating lung cancer. And we are so thankful to have Dr. David Carbone, the director of both the James Thoracic Oncology Center and Translational Therapeutics Program at the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center in Columbus, Ohio with us to help um, understand this. And Dr. Carbone, I sort of threw you a curveball at the end of uh, the first segment and asked you to summarize years and years of uh, lung cancer treatment in a minute. Um, so just just repeat for us um, a little bit around the, the older therapies. And, um, you know, I've been a nurse for almost 30 years now, and things are very different now than they were, um, were then. And sort of just bring us up to, to, to current day, and then we'll dive deeper into immunotherapy. Okay. Well, historically, uh, lung cancer... Lung cancers, uh, when they were advanced and unresectable, were all treated the same, and and that is with typically chemotherapy. And in fact, when I started uh, my career, most lung cancers weren't treated at all for the cancer; they were just treated symptomatically. But the first revolution came about ten years ago with the discovery of of specific gene alterations in in tumors that. Can, for which you can design specific drugs. And these are dramatically effective. They can take people who are desperately ill and within weeks of dying and make and revert them to a normal quality of life with very low toxicity. They're typically oral drugs. And currently there are uh, half a dozen or so specific targets, uh, probably more, that are uh, recognized as being important to test for in tumors and uh, for which there are uh, either approved or um, available inhibitors. And so these, this is a, a major advance in the treatment of lung cancer that affects a subset of patients, uh, about a third of never smokers and about 15% of, of all lung cancers have such targets. The, the next re- revolution really has come about in the, in the last uh, three or four years, and that is uh, learning how to harness the immune system to target uh, lung cancer. Uh, immunotherapy has been a topic of discussion for 100 years, uh, but I think effective immunotherapy only followed the, the science that uncovered why tumors avoid immune responses. And, and actually, this resulted in the Nobel Prize being awarded uh, recently to Drs. Hanjo and Allison. And uh, the uh, most effective therapies now uh, target mechanisms that tumors use to avoid the immune system, effectively uh, turning off their force field and allowing the, the immune system to, to do its job. And what is it about the immunotherapies of today that we've seen such an advancement? 
you know, versus the immunotherapies of the past. I think about interferon, for example. Right. Well, most of those were very uh, nonspecific. The interferon, for example, is uh, a generally uh, acting cytokine that that affects a lot of different processes. The the things and uh, in the past there were vaccine approaches and IL two and 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 there were examples where these were effective, but. In specifically in lung cancer, it seems that a particular pathway called the PD-1 pathway is frequently used by tumors to avoid the immune response. And so the currently most effective immunotherapies target that pathway and block the PD-L1, PD-1 interaction. PD-L1 is the ligand that binds to the PD-1 receptor. And by blocking that single signaling pathway that allows the uh, T cells, the immune cells in in your body to attack the tumor. And in in a subset of patients, we get dramatic and durable responses uh, uh, as a consequence. And in some, in fact, in some people, the... um, Tumor goes away completely, and they can even stop therapy and remain without evidence of progression. And so without, without the, the pathway interference, do T cells not normally attack the cancer, or they just can't keep up with the cancer? So, so this pathway basically is designed to turn off T cells, and it's a normal pathway that that is used to turn off an immune response when it's done. And what happens is that the tumors uh, usurp this pathway and, and the T cell coming in the vicinity of a tumor is told, you don't have any more work to do here, uh, it's all taken care of, and are, they're turned off. Uh, when in fact, that's a deception and the tumor is uh, quite happily growing. Uh, but when you block that signal, then the, the T cells that are there are able to kill the tumor. Now, this doesn't work in everybody, and uh, there are, the immune system is incredibly complicated, and there are probably uh, dozens of different mechanisms that tumors use to avoid the immune response, but at least in a subset of lung cancers, the PD-1 pathway is the dominant pathway, and we see amazing responses uh, with these agents. Mm-hmm. And so when you um, turn on the immune, I'll say hypercharge the immune system <laughs> or prevent okay. it from being turned off, if you will, <laughs> um, what other? What do you see happening in the patient besides, I, I hear you talk about the, the T cells, you know, being activated to, to kill the cancer. Um, but what, what happens with the rest of the patient? What does the patient experience? Right. Well, it's actually more of that they're not deactivated. So it's kind of a double negative. And, and as I said earlier, this is a normal pathway that's used to control the immune response and keep the immune cells from attacking your normal cells. Mm-hmm. So we, in, with these therapies, we see a much higher incidence of what we call autoimmune um, problems than we do with other cancer therapies. And these are where 
body's immune system is is not just turned on to attack the tumor, but it it um, gets diverted and attacks other parts of your body. And the and the most common uh, adverse effect uh, in that regard and with these therapies is is uh, endocrine disorders where um, people will will have damage to their thyroid from the immune system and and end up needed needing to take thyroid medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can adra- attack the adrenal glands and affect cortisol production. It can uh, attack your skin and cause uh, severe skin uh, reactions um, and in other parts of your body as well, uh, including the colon and causing di- potentially life-threatening diarrhea and attacking the lung. But it, those side effects, the significant subset of those side effects really are just a small fraction of patients and we've learned to be able to control those and so these therapies are in general very safe very well tolerated and in hands of uh, physicians used to using them uh, very rarely uh, associated with with significant uh, toxicity but it is different and it has to be handled differently than chemotherapy for example and I think it I think it warrants a pause here to hear from you, a physician, how when when patients experience side effects, and we know that when patients experience side effects from immunotherapy, they need to have a conversation with their healthcare professional. Yet we also know that patients don't always come forward when they are experiencing side effects as early as you would like for them to or any of us would like for them to. So could you, you know, just take a moment and really talk to our listeners about the importance of communicating that to you, you know, when they should, not feeling like they're bothering you, et cetera. You bring up an extremely important point. Patients are are being told about a a diagnosis that is a potentially life-terminating disease, and they're afraid, and they're hearing all of these these new terminologies thrown at them and and all of the uh, different drug names, which are unpronounceable. And, And they fear that if they describe side effects that the doctor will stop their therapies and they will lose the opportunity to benefit. So it is extremely important to uh, communicate with your uh, medical team uh, if you're having any side effects because often we can adjust doses, we can adjust schedules, we can use other drugs without stopping uh, the, the therapy completely. And if we do have to stop, usually it's for a really good reason, and um, sometimes we can restart the therapy. But the biggest mistake is to wait until it's a desperate problem, and uh, it may be irreversible at that point. So it's it's an excellent uh, point that these patients do need to communicate with their teams, and often now hospitals have electronic means of communicating that, that make that simpler. Mm-hmm. And I'll just, we've got one minute left, but I'm just going to add to, um, to, to your words that if a patient on an immunotherapy ends up in the emergency room for whatever reason, the first thing out of their mouth needs to be, I'm on an immunotherapy and call my medical oncologist. <laughs> well, it's, that's definitely true, but it's also true for most types of cancer therapy. And 
the diarrhea from uh, erlotinib is treated completely differently than the diarrhea from pembrolizumab. And I think it's it's impossible for emergency room doctors to uh, be kept up to date on all of those things. And so it's, it is important for them to communicate with the medical oncologist. At our place, we actually have a separate emergency room just for cancer patients. And I think that um, does help. Yeah, with I didn't realize that. Treatment for these side effects. Sure. Yeah, I didn't realize that. That's terrific. Um, we have got to take a break, but Dr. Carbone is going to stay with us. So please don't go away, and we'll be right back after this break. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains, sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. 
This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your guest host, Linda House. Kim Tebaldo is off today, and we are having a terrific conversation with Dr. David Carbone about immunotherapy treatments and lung cancer. And I'm going to ask just a few more questions about immunotherapy, and then Dr. Carbone, I'd like to, to talk with you about just sort of your career and um, and you know how you got to where you are and coaching uh, a younger generation. But if we could just step back quickly, um, I just had a couple of questions around immunotherapies. So are these immunotherapy agents given by themselves or are they given with other types of um, cancer treatments? Well, we're just learning how to best use these agents and uh, they are sometimes given alone. There's more data now that combining immunotherapy with chemotherapy or radiation or both uh, can be effective. And I think down uh, in the future, we will learn how for a particular patient to optimally combine these agents. Right now, though, a lot of it is um, empiric and, and, and suboptimal, but they are definitely being used in combinations and we're studying new combinations. And are they typically given intravenously or um, orally? Most of the current immunotherapies are given intravenously. Some of the agents given with immunotherapies to modulate it might be uh, oral agents, but at, at the current time, most are intravenous. Okay, great. And a question I think everyone wants to know is, how do we know if immunotherapy is working? How long um, might it take us to, to get that answer? Well, it, it's, ver- it's variable patient to patient. Some, sometimes you see res- dramatic responses in just a few weeks. Sometimes the response happens uh, cumulatively over a long period of time. Sometimes you see a, a spot of tumor that shrinks a little bit but doesn't much change you know, f- for the next six months. But then if you take it out, there's no cancer. And so it's, it's a little bit difficult to really measure some of the uh, efficacy of this. If a patient is symptomatic from their cancer, they'll often come in saying they feel better. And that's, that's another way we can tell if it's working. But typically, we do serial uh, CT scans, for example, to, to measure effect. Say, say just a little bit about um, what, what we've heard called pseudo-progression, which I know is distressing to both providers and patients. Well, pseudo-progression is a phenomenon where the, the theory is that when the immune system starts to attack a tumor, it can actually, the tumor can swell and appear to enlarge. And this is not true progression. 
but actually evidence of efficacy. And this, this is actually relatively uncommon in lung cancer. Um, but as I said, sometimes we see delayed responses. And so I think it really relies on the experience of the provider to know when, when to stop therapy or switch therapies. But uh, in the case of immunotherapies, generally we want to make really sure that um, the therapy is not working before we switch. So we can tolerate a slight amount of progression as long as the patient is doing well uh, and continue therapy or add in something else such as radiation, for example. Okay, so let's talk about careers in oncology. And I think, you know, some of the things that you're saying really sort of lead me into uh, to probing a little bit more in this because it does take a lot of experience, um, a, a, a bit of going around the block a little to uh, to, to be able to really read and um, read patients and their side effects and, and make uh, good decisions with the patients. And talk about yourself, first of all. You know, you have been um, in cancer for 27 years as, a, as an oncologist. And how did you decide to pursue your career in medicine? And, and did you always plan to specialize in oncology? No, this is actually a long story. I started out as a physics major in college, interested in electrical engineering, and worked on a medical physics project and got more interested in the medicine than the physics and then went to medical school. And then I hated medical school because at that point in time, it was just memorizing and there was no science. So I got a PhD in genetics. And at that point, back in, when I graduated in 1985, the, there really was no connection between the, the research labs and particularly genetics and, and cancer. But I knew I loved seeing patients, and I knew I loved the science, and I figured that I would pick a, a medical field that was in a, a lot of need of improvement uh, and was a big medical problem, and that I believed that genetics uh, would be a, a route to making progress in the disease. And I, I actually heard a lecture from John Minna when I was a, a tired post-call resident who was describing some of the first gene mutations in lung cancer, and I said, I, I want to work in lung cancer, and I want to work for him, and I ended up doing that. And ever since then, I've, I've been able to combine a research laboratory with clinical care, and, and for me, it's been a very rewarding uh, career path, and and I've been able to witness uh, very significant advances in, in the care of patients based on uh, scientific findings, and it's, it's been very gratifying. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what's so interesting about that, too, is uh, you said you graduated in 1985 it, with your genetics? Well, with the MD and PhD, I, it, I, college in 77. Yeah, I'm just thinking about when the Human Genome Project <laughs> was uh, <laughs> was complete, yeah. which was, you know, what, between 1990 and 2003. So you well, were... My PhD DNA, and I used the old chemical cleavage sequencing in my thesis. I was very proud to have sequenced one kilobase of, of human DNA as part of my thesis, and now that's something that a high school student can do in, a, in an afternoon. <laughs> well, you were, you were definitely on the cutting edge of, of where we are today. 
So, so uh, talk to us, you, you know, we talked a little bit about treatment recommendations earlier. So, you know, there are a number of patients who will present with early stage cancer. Um, and we talked about those who will present with advanced stage lung cancer. But, you know, talk to us about the difference in those two, um, those two individuals. If somebody comes in with early stage lung cancer, do they still do the same type of genomic profiling? And we should probably step back and, and, and talk about, you know, genomic profiling, actually testing the tumor, uh, which is a little different than, you know, genetics and, and a person's risk for cancer. Um, so if you could just right. first talk about that and then talk about the difference between somebody with an early stage or an advanced stage, at least with you know, genomic testing, and then we'll move into a right. treatment. Well, I think it's a, a, a true statement that most most lung cancer patients don't have PhDs in genetics, so they, they don't un- necessarily understand the difference between, um, say, BRCA in, uh, mutations that are inherited and uh, EGFR mutations that are acquired. There are certain mutations that you inherit from your parents that change your cancer risk, and those are managed completely differently than something like the mutations we're talking about in lung cancer that are generally not present in your um, normal cells in your body or given to you by from your parents. They are acquired by the cancer um, and represent unique drivers of the cancer that are not present in the rest of the body, and, and that's what we test for, and that's what we target with the targeted therapies. Okay, got it. And um, when you talk about the genomics, we're, when you mentioned PD-1 earlier, that is a genomic marker. PD-1 is... PD-1, PD-L1 uh, markers are not genomic markers. They are... Okay. They are protein markers, and and the usual assay that's used in the clinic today is to measure the level of expression of PD-L1 protein. This is completely different than looking for EGFR or ALK or ROS or RET uh, genomic uh, alterations. Mm -hmm. And both of these things are essential uh, in planning the appropriate treatment for a, a lung cancer patient today. In terms of early stage patients, we often, the standard practice really doesn't change depending upon what the molecular features are of the cancer. However, there are clinical trials where uh, targeted or immunotherapies are being used in combination with surgery or radiation for early stage cancers. And we're involved in a a neoadjuvant uh, trial where uh, early stage cancers are treated with immunotherapy before surgery, mm-hmm. and it turns out that in some of these patients at the time of surgery, there's no cancer left, that the immunotherapy has cleared all visible sign of the cancer, and wow. when the surgeon takes the, the spot out, there's there's no cancer left. And so it's clear that in the future, we'll be learning how to combine uh, these uh, new scientifically based therapies, even in early stage lung cancers. Wow, that's terrific. So, you know, before we go to a break, we've just got a couple of minutes um, before break. And clinical trials, you know, you started to talk about a neoadjuvant trial, so clinical trials would be a perfect topic. Um, talk to us about the clinical trials that are currently ongoing in immunotherapies and how a patient would approach their physician about participating? 
There are literally thousands of clinical trials now being tested in immunotherapy because of all of the new developments and the new drugs and the new combinations and the new scenarios where they're applied. And, and I firmly believe that uh, clinical trials uh, should be um, discussed with virtually every patient. <clears throat> For clinical trials today are the new standards, are the standards of care tomorrow being used today. And, but the, they do have to be reviewed uh, by an experienced clinician to know what's appropriate in a given situation. Um, since we're getting better and better therapies in first line, it may not be a good idea to do a phase one single agent clinical trial as your first therapy for lung cancer. Um, but I would definitely ask about the availability of clinical trials and strongly consider it if I were a lung cancer patient. And what if they go to a medical oncologist who, you know, who would say that that, that they don't qualify or that they um, that they don't have anything open for them? Would you recommend that they get a second opinion? Would you recommend that they push on their doctor? How should they handle that? Well, I think getting a second opinion is never a bad idea, and any doctor who doesn't want their patient to get a second opinion uh, should uh, be. Um, you should change that doctor and get a different doctor because there are different clinical trials available at different institutions and not everyone is a reasonable candidate for a clinical trial. As I said, therapies are getting more and more specific for smaller and smaller smaller subsets of patients. It's certainly possible that for a particular patient there may not be a a reasonable clinical trial uh, that is reasonably available, but I do think that uh, getting, especially if you're seen in a in a more rural uh, uh, clinical practice setting, that getting an academic uh, uh, medical center opinion from a patient who specializes in the disease is a, a really good idea before you start any therapy. Because once you get that first dose of chemotherapy, often many trial options are no longer available. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to underscore that for our listeners. If you have chemotherapy first, you may not qualify for a clinical trial um, in at least the first line setting. So it's important that you um, exhaust conversations um, before you start your very first treatment. But also, it's, I have also seen patients get second, third, fourth, fifth opinions and travel around the country Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is also counterproductive. I think one or one second opinion at a major medical center is probably enough to make a, a decision and, and traveling around for months getting additional uh, opinions is probably counterproductive. Mm-hmm. And uh, we should probably um, also mention that that oftentimes major academic medical centers will co-manage a patient with a community cancer center closer to the patient's home. So that is a possibility as well. Of course. And on clinical trials, often the therapy has to be delivered at the uh, clinical trial center. But if it is a standard uh, approach, then often the patient can have a level of comfort 
that they're getting the right therapy uh, if the academic program recommends a particular therapy and that they can get back home. And then with the assurance that if it, if that therapy stops working, they're always welcome back and to talk about what trials are, would be available at that point in their cancer journey. Great. I, um, I just want to shift for a second, and um, I want to talk about you again. And one of the, um, the pieces of information that we didn't disclose at the beginning of this segment that I think is, um, is keenly important is that you actually know what it's like to hear the words that you have cancer. And um, in 1999, you were faced with a diagnosis of lymphoma, and I'm just wondering if you would share how that experience really influenced what you've done for your career. Well, happy to. I was a practicing medical oncologist uh, in 1999 and uh, diagnosed myself with something called superior vena cava syndrome, oh, where, yeah. which, is a, which is caused by a, generally a big mass in your chest that blocks the blood return to your heart from the upper part of your body. And I developed those symptoms, recognized what they were, ordered a chest x-ray on myself, found I had a lung mass and a big mediastinal mass, and I thought I had a stage three lung cancer. Eventually, I had my lung take, part of my lung taken out, and uh, the lymph nodes in the center of my chest biopsy, it turned out to be large B-cell lymphoma. And the, uh, with that presentation at that time, the, the five-year survival was listed as about 17%. And so that was a, a pretty shocking and depressing uh, point uh, discovery uh, on my part, and especially since I had four young kids. And so I've been through all of the uh, scientific, uh, emotional and, and family trauma that happens with that diagnosis. I've had uh, lung surgery and radiation and chemotherapy. And uh, as I like to say, it's easier and harder being a doctor in that situation. Um, It's easier because you have trusted medical uh, colleagues that you can go to for your therapy and you understand the language so you don't have to to be uh, learn a new language in this process. But it's also harder because you have experience with how ugly cancer can be if mm-hmm. it's not controlled. Um, so it was definitely a, an experience for me. Mm-hmm. And do you think that that, that has? Uh, so do you think that that's a, that's shaped the way that you you talk to patients or that you yeah, involve them does. in treatment? You know, shared decision making, those kind of things. Of course, it does. Yeah, I have a much greater appreciation for pain. Um, and for side effect management with therapies, I think, than I, I would have otherwise. But also mm-hmm. the, the impact of the diagnosis and the treatment on families and, and social situations and, and spousal relationships and all, all of those things. Uh, and the bigger picture of what it means to have cancer and be going through a therapy for a life-threatening disease. Uh, so, uh, you know, I... I can't say that it's a recommended part of medical education, but I, I think that I have uh, a better um, empathy for my patients uh, because of that experience. Mm-hmm. Well, we are coming to the, the close of this show, but you know, just let me first and foremost 
thank you for for what you do and for how you've you know carried your you know your experience with cancer through to to your patients and and, and to your families and you know especially uh, thank you for all that you do for not only our organization the cancer support community but I know a number of other nonprofits um, you really have dedicated your life to touching and impacting in a positive way people with cancer and uh, thank you so much for that well you're very welcome and I'm I'm happy to to make what a uh, small difference I can make personally in, in this bad disease. Well, that's that's apparent. So thank you so much. And we have got to close the show. We've covered a lot today. For more information on lung cancer, all types of cancer, immunotherapy, please go to our website. It is www.cancersupportcommunity.org. And it has been my pleasure to host for you today. Kim Thibodeau will be back with you next week. As mentioned earlier in the show, the Cancer Support Community provides a multitude of in-person, online, and telephonic support. For more information about our programs and to find an affiliate near you, our website, again, is www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Or please call our helpline, which is staffed by licensed mental health professionals, Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., and they will help you secure resources that uh, you may need as you're going through your cancer journey or just provide a listening ear for you if you need somebody to talk with. That number is 888-793-9355. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. <laughs>